0: Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street. My name is Alan, and this is the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. This episode is about William Seelig a kind of self-made promoter of films and projectors who traveled throughout America's heartland and the West. You were much more likely to find an exhibition using one of his polyscope projectors in those places than you would on the East Coast. He formed Chicago's first movie company, and it was through his repeated efforts to make films out West that the entire industry would eventually move out to the West Coast. Selig's story, as well as Chicago's film history, is a story separate from everything cinematic that was going on in the East Coast. And as it followed its own timeline, it can be hard to find a place to fit both Selig and the Chicago film history into the greater story. His biggest impact would be after the Patent Trust was organized, but the early part of Selig's story should be told around this time. We're getting into a time when big changes are going to happen to the industry, and much of that change will happen in the Midwest rather than on the East Coast or in Europe. William Seelig's parents came from the German states of Prussia and Bohemia, and they started as a family working in the shoe business in Chicago. The Seelig name is generally considered Jewish, but Joseph Seelig and his wife Antonia were deeply Catholic. This would prove to be important because of one of the Patent Trust's first feature length films was Seelig's The Coming of Columbus, which was made with the help of the Catholic fraternal organization The Knights of Columbus. It was filmed close to twenty years after Chicago's Columbian exposition, when Spain had sent replicas of Columbus's ships the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, to the World's Fair. After the exposition, those replicas slowly rotted along the edge of Lake Michigan and in the lagoon of Jackson Park. Seelig went to public schools in Chicago, but finished at the age of 14 in order to help his family by working as an upholsterer. Still, William had other plans. He had become fascinated with magic and like Georges Méliès, James Stuart Blackton and Albert Smith he became obsessed with prestidigitation and soon was appearing in Chicago variety halls performing magic when he got a little older he started touring the midwest at least until health problems arose the problem seems to have been that william seelig suffered from asthma and he followed the other asthmatics who took off for the drier climate of the American West. Seelig settled in Northeast California, where he continued to perform magic in the small towns and in various labor camps, and even managed a health resort until his asthma resided, and he settled in the more humid but temperate climate of San Francisco. There he worked in vaudeville until he organized a minstrel company that he toured in the West, and in the process discovered Bert Williams. At this point, I should mention that there are many questions involving our culture in this pre-World War I period that we don't have answers to. This is an issue not just with American culture, but with British and even French culture of the time. It was a crueler and yet more naive time, but now in our sophistication we still don't understand what was meant in the things that people said about the culture or they did in their lives. I apply this view to all sorts of cultural ideas and situations, including the relationship between black and white culture, as well as in the differences between male and female culture. And cultures that were even more subterranean, such as the LGBTQ cultures of that time, have meanings that are even more difficult to fathom. So Seelig's place in discovering Bert Williams, as well as Williams' place in our culture of that time, will require more work than I can do right now. Hopefully I can, in their appropriate times, do some deeper investigating on the relationship between these cultures and the movies but I guarantee nothing right now. Bert Williams was an African Brit whose career was more about vaudeville and the Zigville Follies than it was about the movies, although I think he did film some shorts at one time. He was from the Bahamas, which was a British colony and would be until 1973. His family settled in California when he was 11, and he graduated from school in Riverside, California. Shortly after, he started appearing in minstrel shows. One of those shows was Martin and Seelig's Mastodon Minstrels. Historically, the minstrel shows have earned a bad reputation, and in our case, it really did not have much of an effect on the movies, outside of a few cringeworthy box office successes in the past. The minstrel shows had much more of an effect upon vaudeville, as they were the most popular form of public entertainment in the decades before vaudeville's rise. Williams was one of a small number of popular black comedians who made the jump from minstrelsy to vaudeville. Williams was part of the Selig and Johnson's Colored Minstrel Shows and later the Mastodon Minstrels. Basically, Selig was co-owner and manager of these shows, which were mixed-race minstrel shows that also featured other kinds of acts, such as performing dogs. These shows featured blacks and whites in blackface. Williams was light-skinned and had a fine singing voice, but his ability to tell stories in a sad but funny way was quite remarkable. While history has been relatively kind to Williams, he was not the most famous black comedian of his day. That honor went to Ernest Hogan, who created minstrel comedy plays and large touring shows. A black newspaper in Iowa much preferred Hogan to Williams because of his ability to use his humor to do more than just create a character. But he admired Williams' ability to build on his characters. These performers made a surprising amount of money despite the racism and segregation of the era, and they were used as proof by both blacks and whites that people of the African American community could succeed. Still, that didn't hold a lot of hope for any African-American with a gift outside of entertainment. During his time with Selig, Williams toured the small towns of the West, which seemed to be much more responsive to traveling shows than did the big cities. It was also at this time that Williams was paired with his future co-star, George Walker. Walker was a great dancer and was probably the best dresser in vaudeville. He taught Williams how to dance and introduced him to elegance in his performances. By 1900, Williams and Walker was touring as a high-class minstrel show with 50 people, most of them dressed in gorgeous costumes. It was around this time that the show ran for months in both New York and in London. Unfortunately, by the latter part of the decade, Walker was showing signs of mental illness that's generally believed to be the latter stages of syphilis and was committed to an asylum where he died in 1910. This fate also fell on another major black comedian of the time, Bob Cole. Once Williams and Walker left Seelig's troupe, Seelig shut it down and chose to work his way down to San Diego, where he performed magic and saved money to travel to Dallas. The reason was that he could make good money at the Dallas Fair. Unfortunately, the weather was pretty awful when he arrived there, with a lot of rain. But this latest misfortune brought him one piece of luck. He got to experience a kinetoscope. This was in the summer of 1905, over a year after Edison had first marketed his peephole machine and had already seen its best days as a popular culture novelty, eventually Seelig returned to Chicago. When he settled back into the Windy City, Seelig set himself up as a photographer in a small shop on Peck Court, which was once near the southern end of the loop across from Grant Park. During his off time, he continued to pursue his curiosity about moving pictures and the machines that made them. He spent some time attempting to make a moving picture machine, but finally surrendered to the idea of working with a machine shop. The shop he chose was on the other end of Chicago's Loop and was called Union Model Works. The place had a lot of experience working with a variety of machines, and coincidentally, one of the machinists, Andrew Shestek, had just finished a remarkably strange project similar to what Seelig was looking for. An unknown Frenchman with limited English skills had requested that Shestek make a series of gears and parts, each one independently and one at a time. It seems that this man was remaking a movie camera by taking the individual parts of a Lumiere cinematograph and building his own. Was he a Lumiere cameraman? Was he a local émigré who happened upon a cinematograph? No one knows. But Shustek had kept all the individual drawings and details concerning the project and seems to have been able to assemble either a cinematograph or at least a schematic of the projector camera. After shustik and Seelig had talked this issue over, it was decided that the machinist would make a duplicate, but alter it just enough to avoid patent infringement. What Seelig wanted was to separate the camera from the projector. This hopefully would complicate matters between he and the Lumieres. Selig allowed the Union Model Works to claim the ownership of the patent in order to avoid a lawsuit, although this doesn't seem to have protected the machine shop in any way. Instead, Selig would act as a salesman for what would be the projector called the polyscope, although to be honest, very little happened with this machine until around 1900. With a separate camera and projector, Seelig set out to make movies. The vast majority of them, though, were simply dupes, either of Millez's films or Edison's. This included his Spanish-American War films, although he did film a few just outside of Chicago. His one truly successful film in the late 1890s was The Tramp and the Dog. This was probably the first original comedy inspired by the Sprinkler Sprinkled series. In this short, a tramp is chased by a dog and grabs onto his pants just as he's about to go over the fence. Apparently, Seelig's film was quite a laugh-getter at the time, and it probably inspired dupes by other companies, since everyone seemed to be duping films. One truly remarkable film was Negro Kiss. At this time, the black Americans who did appear in films were primarily children who did things that made people laugh. There were also a small number of American films that poked fun at black behavior, at least in the way that white people perceived them to be. While Seelig did do a few comedy shorts with blacks, Seelig seems to have been the only filmmaker to have a fair and realistic view of a side of life outside of white culture. Maybe it was simply his working with Williams and Walker or the minstrel shows, but Selig's Negro Kiss is probably one of the only mature shorts about blacks that exists up until the mid-1910s, when the first African-American film companies appeared. The performers in the film were St. Suttle and Gertie Brown. Both were cakewalk dancers in minstrel shows and vaudeville, and my guess is that Seelig knew them from his own minstrel days. According to Seelig, this film was a parody of May Irwin's Kiss, a very popular film from the late 1890s. The interpretation of this description makes me wonder. Was Seelig filming honest adult behavior between two black performers and labeling it as a parody, simply to sell the film? Or was this film really a film performance piece from their subtle and browns minstrel act? Or are we the ones misinterpreting the meaning of the film? Was this film not so much an honest portrayal of black humanity, but a parody of white behavior performed on stage? It's probable that there are layers of racial behavior from the late 19th century in this film that both current black and white cultures may not be picking up. Then again, maybe not. Maybe it is what it is. This also makes me wonder about other race films that Seelig made, such as A Night in Blackville, Shooting Craps, and Who Said Watermelon? These films were marketed to emphasize the white view of black culture, but Seelig, who was probably better acquainted with these performers than the public may have realized, may have been doing something different. Was he simply filming vaudeville routines? Or was this an attempt to make better or more emotionally honest race shorts? And even more, this kind of filmed behavior, which was focused on stage life either portrayed by black actors or whites, did not play well with people of a more Victorian or more morally religious viewpoint, and that attitude included both whites and blacks. The problem is that these three films are now missing, so it's really hard to evaluate Seelig's place when it comes to the making of minority films or even evaluating the films themselves. But it's not all bleak. Selig made a cakewalk film in the spring of 1903. This would have been around the same time that the three previously mentioned films were made. The film was made four years later than Negro Kiss, and surprisingly, it exists. It's also possible that Subtle and Brown were in this one, too. There are five people in the film. All sources identify them as five Negroes. I'm not so sure. When the five people stand in a line at the beginning, I think that the man in the middle might be St. Subtle, and the woman to his left may be Gertie Brown. Odds are, though, that these two people and the couple on their right are part of a minstrel troupe. It's interesting that the fifth person, a young man, gets cut out of the picture about halfway through it, leaving the four others in view. While it's possible that this fifth man is a light black, I'm not so sure. To me, it's possible that he's not even black or mixed. He looks to me like William Sealing himself, with his hair parted in the middle and his big, dark, bushy mustache. And if it is, he's the one who's promenading with Gertie. Most of the pictures you see of Seelig are in his later years, when he was older. His film company was doing very well, and he had gained a good amount of weight. But even in his Edison Patent Company photo, taken in 1908, he's not that heavy. And if there was a white person involved in the movies who knew how to cakewalk, it would have been him. And if it is Selig... There is obviously some amount of friendship between the troupe and him. They may have worked with him in San Francisco in the good old days. It would definitely take more than my opinion to prove that theory, but it might change the way some people think about these films, these actors, and William Seelig. In about 1899, Seelig started to market his polyscope, and at just about the same time, he and his lawyers incorporated the Seelig Polyscope Company. At first he marketed his machines in the Midwest, but soon he had expanded into the South. Like Lubin's cineoscope, the polyscope had a good reputation for projecting a good image. Seelig's marketing plan seems to have developed from the lack of reliable distribution outside of the East Coast by some of the other film companies in general. Between Lubin, Edison, and Biograph, only Edison had a few national distributors, with Peter Bachigalupi representing Edison on the West Coast and George Klein representing him in Chicago. That meant that someone in Texas or Colorado had to send away for films in Chicago or New York. Selig understood this, and though his actual travels may have been limited, He seems to have made some attempt to stay in touch with his clients far from the East Coast. When it came to Edison's threats, Selig, who was naturally confident and even a bit full of himself at times, usually declared that he just ignored Edison's threats. But in 1901, Edison seems to have temporarily won his battle for patent control, and Selig grew worried. He and the Union Model Works agreed to stop making and selling their polyscope projectors, at least for a time. But he would continue to make and sell films. Still, most of those films were dupes, rather than original films. Seelig's biographer, Andrew Irish wrote about the films being made at that time by Seelig. There are twelve parades of everything. From Civil War veterans to automobiles, which were probably uh, Edison dupes, at least a half-dozen politicians are featured, including President McKinley dedicating a cornerstone and William Jennings Bryant at home in Lincoln, Nebraska. Among the 20 comedies listed are several satirizing African and Irish Americans, as well as country rubes. Again, many of these are probably Edison dupes. Ten travelogues of trains passing through Midwestern and Western scenery. Ten dance films encompassing everything from cakewalks to ballet. A half dozen sports films, including bullfights and horse races. Fifteen magic and special effects subjects are also listed though most were made by Georges Méliès and illegally copied by Seelig. Not just the magic films, but most of Seelig's films were probably illegal copies. He didn't create much in the way of original content, at least not until the latter part of a decade. There are probably two reasons for that. The first was money, and the second was Edison. And the two reasons are related. Edison had been doing battle with everyone, although some of that was rather low-key. When you look at what is written about the patent suits and the eventual organization of the patent trust, it does sound as if these legal incidences happened only occasionally. In other words, Edison files a patent violation suit. Two years later, it goes to court. The judge rules in his favor. An appeal is quickly filed. Several months later, that case comes up in court. That judge rules against Edison. Edison's lawyers reassess how the patent is written and rewrite it again. The patent is altered and reissued. The cycle begins again. All of this took so long to happen that it seems as if the people that Edison was fighting in court had a lot of time to do regular business, but it's not that simple or that inexpensive, especially for someone halfway across the continent. In order to fight Edison in court, you needed a lawyer or a law firm on retainer. That's due to the number of court appearances that the lawyers need to make, even if the defendants are not there. In fact, defendants never seem to appear in court, even during the trials. It's simply a case of battling lawyers, and Selig, who was a thousand miles away in Chicago, would need to hire New York lawyers or help pay for the expenses of Chicago lawyers in New York. Seelig was making good money, but it wasn't that good. The fact was that no one had the deep pockets that Edison had. This is the trick that all wealthy companies use to fight court battles, especially patent battles. No one but corporations and the very rich can afford long-term fights in court. Edison, as did all companies, knew this. That's why Biograph was doing most of the fighting. They were a company that had deeper pockets than the rest. They also had patents that could avoid infringing the Edison patents as long as the judge's rulings was narrow enough to avoid Edison's theory that the original idea was all his. Phytograph, which was probably the poorest of the American film companies, but also the most creative, had rolled over pretty quickly and agreed to pay a percentage to the Edison company. In a way, this is a little like the protection racket used by gangs, except that it's legal. Seelig was quite well off at this time. His incorporation proved that. He was one of a number of people dealing with film in Chicago who got nailed by Edison in 1900, and he arranged to retain the Chicago law firm of Banning and Banning. This was the company that also represented Sears Roebuck & Company, also defendants against Edison. Still, it's not quite clear why Sealeg's finances became shaky over the next few years. At least, that's how it's explained. But if you look at the company's release schedule up to the time when Edison made his desperate last moves before organizing the patent trust, Seelig was releasing quite a number of films and was involved in a number of corporate projects the corporate projects really did turn out to save the company's existence seelig had always intended to use his filmmaking prowess as a tool for other businesses so the philip armor company contracted william seelig in order to make a complex series of films about meat packing Philip Armour was very interested to see this done. The project would require the filming of the complete slaughtering process and include the various animals that were slaughtered in the plant, as well as the processing steps, which even included footage of the meat being blessed by rabbis for kosher approval. At each station, Selig needed the walls painted and bright lights were borrowed from a local theatrical company. Over 50 of these films were made, and, at the time, they were offered as a complete set. The money must have been a real blessing to Selig. Fast forward four years, and we're well into the Teddy Roosevelt administration, and he had recently read Upton Sinclair's novel The Jungle. If you remember any talk about this in school, then you know it's a novel about the meatpacking industry in Chicago, and Sinclair was not kind to it. Armour was concerned about the industry's reputation due to the novel and asked Seelig if he could make copies of the films, all 50-some reels, so they could be sold to the public as an example of what the industry really looked like. Seelig apologized and said that due to Edison's legal stunts, he was in a financial bind and couldn't copy them. This is generally viewed as true financial difficulties for Selig. But I wonder. Again, making film positives out of negatives is actually rather expensive, and for Armour to request well over 50 individual films to be made more than once seems extravagantly expensive, far more than a small film company would have paid. And there was no guarantee that these films would make a lot of money, even if they were sold individually. Instead, Armour paid for the films, and Seelig sold them through his network. The films were purchased by traveling exhibitors and film exchanges, but it's not known how successful they were at that time. While it's possible that Seelig was struggling, the request was rather outlandish. But several months later, Seelig was offered the opportunity to return to Texas and film a lumber company. While doing so, he filmed himself fishing for tarpon in the Gulf and picking up travelogue pictures in a number of places in Texas. Business films were proving to be just about as successful as making dupes and comedies. At the same time, Seeley was also making travel films and actualities of the Rocky Mountains through the efforts of his friend, Harry Buckwalter. Buckwalter was an Easterner who came to the mountains as a teenager. He worked at the newspapers and developed a side interest in photography. If anything, Buckwalter seems to have been passionate about photography and all things Western. Especially of Colorado. He truly had a love affair with both the mountains and the camera. He ended up working for the Rocky Mountain News as a reporter shortly before they started to print photographs. At first, his photos were transcribed into illustrations, but later they were used in the newspaper. He also embraced photographic novelties such as the X ray and later the moving picture camera. For a time, he did side work for the Colorado Midland Railroad, which had the most scenic views of any rail company in the state at the time, and in 1902, he sent a number of travel films to Seeley to sell through his catalogs. Buck Walter's photographic love affair with Colorado set in motion the concept of the Western and was the first step in the film industry's move to the West. Interestingly, Seelig's and Buck Walter's friendship led to another Seelig business opportunity that launched another film trend: Hale's Tours. Hale was the former fire chief of Kansas City, and in 1903 was still working as a promoter of fire safety products, systems, and procedures. He also had a major amusement venture in the groups he organized as Hale's Firefighters. At that time, he was also hired to be the fire coordinator by the people organizing the St. Louis World's Fair. Hale hooked up with Seelig and Buckwalter so that the Chicagoan could make films of Hale's processes in fire safety. This was at the time when films about fire departments rushing to fight fires had become quite popular. Seelig had even made one called Denver Fireman's Race for Life which may have been another important source of inspiration for Edwin Porter's The Life of an American Fireman. Selig's reputation impressed Hale, and he made the film that Hale had requested. These films played at the fair, and Hale would follow that up with the first train rides movie in Kansas City. Finally, Selig's films also provided him with some notoriety. The First was tracked by bloodhounds a film that really does suggest Seelig's pension for filming out west especially in Colorado quite a number of his films were made out there with Thomas Nash usually the cameraman and this time Seelig directing the concept involved a group of men tracking a black man and lynching him after he had killed a white woman this was a pretty risky idea even then And the black community in Cripple Creek, where the film was being shot, were very nervous about the scheme. Word went out among the blacks not to volunteer to make the film, but when the film premiered in Cripple Creek, the black community recognized the film's murderer as a black porter named Wash Edwards. Furious, the local blacks organized a lynch mob and threatened Wash with his life, although he agreed just to leave town. By the time the film was released, Cripple Creek had become the scene of a major strike by the Western Federation of Miners. A bomb exploded, killing several scab miners, and the same dogs who were used in Seelig's film were now used to hunt down the terrorists who planted the bomb tracked by bloodhounds, was soon renamed lynching at Cripple Creek, and Selig's PR for the film slyly suggested that at least part of the film was documentary. Three years later, another unusual incident happened involving Selig actors. Two performers in Selig's film, Tomboys, may have been involved in a romance which led to the murder of one of the film's two female leads. Unlike tracked by bloodhounds, tomboys does not seem to exist anymore. So outside of the names of Margaret Leslie, who was killed, and Howard Nichols, who may have killed her, we know nothing else. So that's enough about Seelig's early years. Once Edison's lawyers inaugurate the patent trust, Seelig will finally be comfortable with his relationship with Edison. He will be the man that leads the film industry to California, and he will establish Los Angeles' first zoo. By the late 1910s, he'll be making more money from the zoo and the renting of animals to the film industry than from his own films, and he'll retire from the filmmaking part of the business. But that's all in the future. Now, next time, we'll talk about an important but somewhat forgotten comedy film called personal so thanks for listening and take care of yourselves